The first 100 million should be a layup in this part of the world, really. 150 is a layup, Toby. Just write that down on your wall. <laughs> oh, it's just chalking that up. Here we go. <laughs> Looking at raising capital or taking your business from Aotearoa to the world? You're in the right place. Make your mahi count with Investment Fix. Brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Kia ora. I'm Dylan Lawrence, General Manager of Investment at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. Now taking your business from Aotearoa to the US is a huge step, but can also open up massive opportunities. In this episode of The Investment Fix, I caught up with two Kiwis who are well-versed in growing businesses in the US. Toby Litton, CEO and founder of Parkable, who recently spent time living in Denver to help grow the US business off the back of a landmark deal with Meta. And Ros Buick, a Kiwi who's lived and worked in the US for over 20 years, helping grow global companies like Oracle and Trimble. When we spoke with Roz, she was a Senior Vice President of Strategy, Product and Development at Oracle, and she's now working as an Executive Board Director and Consultant. Roz and Toby give us their advice on growing a business in the States and share some of the lessons they learnt along the way. Welcome Roz, welcome Toby, thanks so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Let's kick off with a quick introduction. You're both Kiwis who are now based in Denver, Colorado, or close to, but your paths have been quite different. Roz, I'll start with you. You grew up on a farm in New Zealand. Yeah, I'm a farm girl just south of Christchurch. And then you moved to Silicon Valley in 2000? Yeah, that's right. Took the whole family, which was my son and husband at that point, convinced them to sit by the pool for two years and just hang out while I go to work and then we'd go back, but somehow we stayed. <laughs> and tell us about what you're doing now. I work at Oracle now, been here in nearly three years. Prior to that, 24 years at Trimble in various markets doing technology, agriculture, construction, both civil and buildings and bridges and various things. And of course, hardware and software, just trying to help the world transform the way they do their workflow, essentially. Fantastic. Toby, you're no stranger to the Investment Fix podcast. You launched a parking management app, Parkable, back in 2015. Yeah. You've seen huge growth since then. Tell us a bit about Parkable and yourself. Like Ros, I grew up in a small town up in the north of New Zealand for about half of my youth and in Auckland for the other half, and then found my way into technology and software via a very circuitous route. In 2015, started this business, and now we have presence around the world, including the US, where we're talking about today, and love chatting with you, Dylan, and the audience, and sharing learnings, because I find it comes back in spades. So super excited to be here and chat about Parkable in our journey so far. Well, let's kick into it. Toby, why should a New Zealand company go to the US, and what's so good about it? I can't answer for everyone, and I guess that's my general disclaimer at the beginning. But for us, it's about access to capital, access to customers. And for a business like ours, it's the opportunity for, in air quotes, limitless scale. We've got so many big customers that we can address up there, and that's pretty appealing. We're pretty specific about the type of customer we go after, but in the US, there's thousands of them. Whereas in New Zealand, I think there's seven. It's quite a difference, right? There is. And Roz, you've spent a lot of your career scaling businesses in the US. What's your take on the opportunity for New Zealand companies when it comes to growing that business? Toby hit some of them, but I'd say it's absolutely enormous in terms of the opportunity. And we've got to remember it's 50 countries, but where else can you reach 50 contiguous geography countries that all speak English and they call it English 
and largely consistent business processes. Depending on the product, it's a fantastic place to try and scale any technology. I also think the US has a mindset just inherently about maybe it's the American dream, but everyone's got business in their minds and they know that innovation and technology is a key element to staying in business and growing any business. So if you can get that killer app that gets you into the market here, I think it's a gold mine. Do you think the US holds more interest for particular sectors? And if so, which ones? I don't know that there's a limit. The trendy ones right now, maybe fintech, construction tech, prop tech, property tech, energy manufacturing, but even biotech and pharma and food tech and ag tech, all of them I've seen here. And of course, aerospace and defense is big. We're going off on a Tesla rocket soon. <laughs> I'd weighed in on that too. I think Ros has summed it up with the sectors. For us, we love the US because there's a real tendency to buy technology and we've tried to sell into other markets where that cultural purchasing willingness is not there and the US, people are happy to talk about it, expect innovation, they want to see it, they're interested and curious and they make decisions on technology imperatively quickly regardless of sector. That for us made it culturally a good fit. Fantastic. When's the best time to go if I'm a company on my growth journey? Toby? Yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) What stage of the life cycle in your head? We were too late in going. We were too slow to go up there. If I was re-engineering it now, I'd say you need enough of an infrastructure. Let's say you get started in New Zealand, if that's your mode, and you do some testing and validation in New Zealand, that's good. You need enough infrastructure to be able to deliver your product, but that's it. And from my perspective, you need to know how to sell it. But we've learned we needed to position our product very differently, slightly different buyer audience, different language, all this kind of stuff. As Ros pointed out, yeah, it's English, but it's 50 different versions of English. Well, maybe four or five different versions of English is how we find it in the US. And so we've had to relearn and revalidate and almost reassess product market fit. We know our product works, it's being willingly bought, but that's a journey and that takes time. So getting up there earlier rather than later would have been a better decision for us, I think. Mm-hmm. You thought you moved up there too late or you tried to enter it too late. At what stage did you try and enter it? And to give a sense of scale, we were, I guess, about 30 people before we set foot in the US. We weren't doing a lot up there. We were trying to generate some inbound inquiry out of New Zealand from the US, and we were scaling in Australia, and we'd made a conscious choice to go to the UK first before the US. And what we should have done is look to the US even before Australia. We're opportunity limited in Australia. We're not in the US. And so if we'd have made that decision a little bit differently two years ago, life might have been a bit faster. Roz... What characteristics or attributes does a New Zealand company need before they enter the US market? Do your market research. A lot of companies think it's about engineering and then let's get salespeople in some territory over in the States. You really got to put emphasis on product strategy and what are the market segments? You can go to the big end of town, you know, the enterprise size customer or the smaller end of town, depending on the product and the segment, of course, that you're in. But I think it's a real discipline for a reason. A lot of companies and entrepreneurs might want to overlook those skills. And I think that's important to get under the belt. You know, how do you size the market and all that flows on from that? And then you can see, is my product going to fit this market? You have enough conversations with customers, go to trade shows, whatever. Because sometimes mastering it in any geography actually doesn't work in another geography. It might be the way you articulate the value proposition and quantify that can be very different. The level of product maturity has to be there for the market, but you've got to do your homework around the market research. 
My other big theory is go-to-market fit. I don't believe anyone should build a product without thinking go-to-market strategy at the same time because they need to be synergistic. You need a product with feet on the street, local support, calibration, ongoing training. You might want a global dealer network that you can tap into that's geographically going to reach the geography for you quickly and cost effectively, or if it's a technical product, what kind of sales people do I need to be hiring, what backgrounds? So I'm a big believer in that matching product to go to market and vice versa, designing them together a little bit. If you're driving for a SaaS business, which most people's nirvana is ARR these days, you've got to really understand how to operationalize that business, which is not just charge per month. It's a lot of things that go on inside the business, the whole bow tie funnel, the customer lifecycle journey management, all that stuff. So I'd say product fit and go-to-market fit research and go from there. I wish I'd heard Roz say that two and a half years ago, Dylan. We did it in a linear fashion and it's wrong. We did product market fit, then go-to-market fit, and we're still working out the go-to-market fit, if I'm honest. It takes a lot of time, and for us, that's been a real journey. And so, Roz, I violently agree with you. That's such good advice and something to anyone entering the US to take to heart. Figure out your go-to-market. It's painful and expensive if you do it sequentially. Yeah, yeah. that's good to hear from your point of view. The other thing you've got to be ready for, just so I can throw this one in, what you might be expecting in terms of your growth trajectory on the business, when you get here and you get traction, are you even ready with any of your operational processes to scale 10 times or 100 times? And often this comes down to things like digital tools or workflows or how you're contracting, how you're onboarding the customer, training them, supporting them, all that stuff. You have to plan to get to a scalable reality to start with, but think through how do you defriction that whole process because when it takes off, you might be floundering with the traditional methods you start out with. What I'm hearing is, geez, the opportunities in the US are much more limitless than other places and that's why you should think about it. And then in terms of, well, when do you go, make sure you go at a point in time where you can still build your product strategy and your go-to-market strategy at the same time. The question that follows from both those points is, okay, where should I go? And Roz, you said earlier that America's 50 countries rolled into one. Should you approach it one state at a time? And how do you choose where to start? Yeah, it's a really great question. It's a little bit of an art form versus science, but maybe a bit of both. Again, the market research matters. There's great databases in this country you can affordably get to actually qualify what are these companies I'm targeting and how do I apply my product to that, to size that total available market, Tam, Sam, Sol. That becomes your baseline as you enter into the market. If you look at different states, there'll be different attractiveness on the market size for your product. Talent pools is another big one. If you're trying to create an organization base in the US, you got to think about how am I going to find the talent I need? Do you position yourself close to universities with great software developers coming out or construction engineers or whatever it might be? that you think you need the domain skills or the expertise because digital talent is so competitive. Every company is going digital these days. Caterpillar, any of the industrials are all hiring at a great rate digital talent. You gotta really think about where am I gonna put my base and be able to find uh, good graduates coming out of school that I can hire and attract into the company. 
macroeconomic factors, legal policy regulations. Like in construction, there's different engineering specifications or policies in local government, wherever you go with design, build software in construction tech. Based on those things, I would say pick one state to master it, and that becomes your hub and start out small. In theory, that market model, that Tam Sam song, gives you a great baseline. Even if it's not perfect day one, it gives you a great baseline to measure how well are you moving into that market size that you've quantified. I agree with Ros in terms of the Tam Sam song. And for us, there's a couple of things that might be a little bit different and just a different flavor on what Ros has just described. We went through and we had about 13 formal criteria that we used, including Tam Sam song, proximity to customers, Some have bubbled up as being more important, but to contextualize our journey, when we moved into the US, we were 25 or 30 people. Now we're nudging 70. And so for us, what that means is we needed to rely on New Zealand infrastructure and Australian infrastructure a lot more in our early establishment in the US. And so one of the criteria that is a lot more important for that is actually time zone, just practically having crossover. Otherwise, your teams are doing calls at midnight and they burn out and they can be the most committed, amazing humans, but it's really tough. It's bloody hard to do calls at midnight four or five times a week. So for us, time zone was a really important one practically. And the other human element is we were relocating a founder up there and I'm relocating a lot of my senior team up to the U.S., I mean, this sounds crazy and it's a different age stage and it being a, a slightly earlier stage entering the US, your family's got to love where you go. Yeah. If they don't love it, it's bloody tough. And you've got to think about the family of your key executives that you're moving into market. You've got to make sure they're on the journey, which sounds nuts, right? You're like, we're a commercial reality, you know, we run it as a business, but these are very real human considerations because if the executives are key that are moving into market, you want them to be happy and stable and their family to be happy and stable. So it's a real weird one because it's a human consideration. It's not a commercial consideration as such, but it results in people staying and results in them having a hell of a fun journey with you. And that builds culture and that builds the willingness for those grads. To Ros's point, go to where there's talent then those people you attract into your business, particularly the younger ones, they see that fun and energy and see people having a good time and see a career for themselves in that business. And that's really important for us to attract and retain talent at both ends. Yep, that's a good point. There's so much gold in this conversation. I'm going to say I just learned something here because I was going to ask a question around weighing up location between your customer set, your talent pool, and potentially your future investors. But I hear there's 13 potential criteria and I love the point you made around the family fit for your key executives in your time zone. And I hadn't reflected on that before. To follow up from that, does the founder or the CEO, do they need to be based in the US in your view? It's an agent stage thing. I think in our case, yes, absolutely. We relied on our New Zealand headquarters and infrastructure a lot as we've scaled into the US. When junior people go into a market, which is what we did in Aussie and the UK, it was a mistake because they don't have the mana or the gravitas to communicate back to the head office that this is what needs to happen. You've got to mold your business to the market and you've got to mold that product market fit and that go-to-market fit to Ros's point earlier. And unless you've got someone senior and a founder is obviously one of the best senior bods in terms of gravitas and mana, communicating back to your critical mass, we need our business to do this to succeed in this market. You do have to change. You do have to adjust your product. You do have to adjust the way you sell. And it's hard. Even for a smaller business, it's hard. I definitely think Founder or a very early senior exec or both of the above need to go to market. They need to carry that mana so you can win your early customers and also so that your business back home adapts to the US. You talked about proximity to investors as a criteria. I'm learning that you've got to be in the US, 
but it doesn't matter. The investors will come to you, man. Don't choose your location based on where the investors are. Good investors will find good businesses wherever they are in the US and there's heaps of money. So build a good business first. Worry about investment second. Yeah, I agree totally with that statement too. There's just so many VCs and private equity all over the world actually that are constantly looking to invest and they contact whoever they can find, LinkedIn or whatever they know, right? They want a US presence though, right? Ross has been my experience. It doesn't matter if you're in Albuquerque or Tennessee or New York or Silicon Valley, they'll find you if you build a good business first. If you haven't brought your product to the US and validated with customers, it's not on the radar for a lot of US investors though. You gotta get that little bit of traction here. We've yep. got a lot of Kiwi tech companies in Denver. What makes it so attractive for Kiwi businesses? It's a fun place to be. It's good in terms of work-life balance. From a business perspective, the time zone's got great crossover with New Zealand. It's a great central location to cover UK, all of the US, New Zealand and Australia. There's good access to talent. There's good schools. There's a good technology hub. There's something like 140, 160,000 software engineers live in Denver. You get your tax benefits for employing people there. The local economic development office is amazingly supportive and helpful with introductions. There's a huge Kiwi Mafia there, so that's awesome. There's a particular street in Denver called Platt Street, and I don't know, there must be 20 New Zealand businesses on Platt Street. You walk down the street and you bump into each other, and, and it's really nice to be in a foreign land. It's easy to think it's not a foreign land, but it is, and they do things very differently, but it's cool. And then in the weekend, you can go up the mountains, whether it's summer or winter, and you can go and do cool stuff. It's hugely accessible. I'd fly short notice to New York and there's something like 140 flights a day you can get to New York on out of Denver. It's just crazy accessible. That's why Denver for us, but it's a cool place. There's lots of cool people. Dare I say, there's even some cool Australians in the neighborhood. So, so. It's a bit of a magnet for Aussies and Kiwis, actually. Yeah. I'm on of Propeller, which is also a Sydney headquartered, but big team here. I would say it's a really fun place to live because there's so much outdoor living, and most Kiwis grow up probably not realizing, but we get our kicks from outside on most fronts, sport teams, mountain skiing, biking. So I think there's a lot of that you can get in Colorado that we've personally found living here has made it a lot more attractive. I've lived in Silicon Valley for two years and I've lived in Virginia on the East Coast for three years. And I've lived here now in Colorado probably nearly 20 years. And I can safely assure, for me at least, and our family, it's been a lot easier from a lifestyle point of view. On the coasts, a lot more people, a lot more traffic. You better love the inside of your car because you're going to be in it a lot longer. And of course, you're in the middle of the country is by far the least hassle to go travel to either coast and get to where you need to go, Texas, New York, or San Francisco. And there's more microbreweries than you can poke a stick at. What more could a Kiwi ask for after they've ridden their bike? We're biased, maybe, but big fan. Love it. And just follow from that last string of conversations. I've heard some Silicon Valley investors, they've referred to Colorado as sleepy. You've worked in both places. Agree, disagree? Disagree. Disagree. That sounds like Silicon Valley arrogance to me. Get on a plane and go out and visit and find some businesses you're lazy. So, yeah, I think it's a fun place and a booming place. Governor Polis was talking about how this has been 16 consecutive years with a business-minded governor in place, and that actually has encouraged economic development growth. And I think it's a really happening place. Austin, Texas is too, I would say, in terms of alternatives. 
because people want to get out of Silicon Valley. It's so expensive. It's so congested. Even Oracle, where I work currently, moved headquarters to Austin, Texas in about 2020. There's a lot of new Silicon Valleys following around the Front Range in Colorado, where we live, and many other places. Tennessee, Texas, check out the new Silicon Valleys. I want to spend some time talking about doing business in the US now. Some of the differences, some of the adjustments you've had to make. Maybe I'll start with the cultural and business differences. Roz, you've lived in the US for over 20 years now? Yep. Did a few jumping back and forth between those. But yeah, 20 years on the ground. I think the cultural differences, we've touched on some of them. The big one comes with the fact that capital and investment is very central to the culture. We might think quickly, oh, we need to be looking for break-even and bottom line, but actually the mindset of growth and investment to grow on the top is such a strong cultural difference, I would say. Even when I work with smaller Australian New Zealand companies, you see that. Of course, we're moving at a little bit more of a conservative time, but generally growth and grabbing the market, that's expected and it takes money to do it, so you've got to invest culturally be open-minded and continuously learning because you might have nailed your product in Australia and New Zealand, but it's a totally different animal like we touched on before. Now I've taken products to China. The whole value proposition can change, let alone the feature set. You got to be ready for some of that here too, because the economics are just so different. And I'd say energy, optimism, and fun are three words. I've had an amazing career based out of the US mainly I love New Zealand, I love Kiwis too, but there's just an incredible amount of momentum and energy with what you do when you come to work. Americans bring a lot of energy and possibly they live to work, but it's got an incredible rub-off effect, I think, on anyone that's working around that. They also love to brainstorm and think out loud. You've got to get used to that. The great thing is anything's possible in their mindset, so instead of saying an idea and then going, ah, nah, yeah, nah, that's probably not going to work. Actually, Americans will give it a go. I think that's a big difference. One other thing is I think culturally, Americans believe that markets are big enough pie for everyone. And so there's a mindset of collaboration and partnership and cooperation even that's really nuanced sometimes, but it's much more accepted here than perhaps comes naturally from Aussie and New Zealand markets. I'm learning by listening, mate. It's, I'm so fresh. I'm reflecting with pretty fresh eyes on the differences between what we see. Everything Ros has just said is ringing true, albeit early for me. What I see is the markets are much faster. That cooperation thing means you've got a much more shifting landscape. And when you say, how is it culturally different? I'd say, which version of the US? <laughs> because there's this two-speed thing going on. We've got people who see so much change going on around them, they'll sit back and they'll wait until something's proven absolutely. And I guess it's just the size of the market. You're always going to have different buyer profiles. But the early adopter and the people who want to buy innovation quickly and buy technology quickly, they're lightning fast. And that front edge is moving so quickly. And the service offerings and your competitor responses, the competitors will move so fast. So you've got to be all over it. In New Zealand, we kind of think, oh, cool, I've got product market fit, check. And a technology business. Very different if you're in food and beer or something like that. A technology business, the front edge is so fast, you've got to adapt so quickly. Your competitors will respond so quickly. If you win one customer that's important to them, they will mimic your offer. So you've got to be ready for that. Culturally, just touching into employment, we've been burned a little bit. I'm sure every business that is new to the US probably shares these words, but 
we've had two employees leave within the first week of employment, just no show. It's like, hey, you workers do hard, I guess, that's something, I don't know. Culturally, that's been a watch out for us. We've had to really work hard on our recruitment and our retention thinking. We thought we had a pretty well-honed recruitment machine. It's very deliberate and it's modeled off all the best thinking from all the big Silicon Valley businesses and all that, but it didn't work. So there's things like that, I think, that are very real and tangible for us. Can I just add one more point to that one? I think when Kiwis talk about their capabilities and their credentials, I think we really mean it. But the reality is Americans are the complete reverse. So you can find too often people that sound amazing and look amazing on their resumes and they're really not going to cut the mustard as such. Firing and putting people into tested situations on whether it's coding or testing or QA, as much as possible, you can really prove them out, I think is important here. We've talked about the size and the opportunity's been limitless almost here. And I've heard you say this before, Roz, do New Zealanders think big enough in terms of growth, in terms of scale? What are your thoughts on that? I think we focus too much on the bottom line, showing positive and also let's get our little business going. As we've said, 50 countries is way bigger than one. And you've got to really think big strategically but then execute small is what I like to say, because you can't go at any pace faster than what your financials and, and resourcing can allow. But thinking big, whether it's the actual product partnerships, particularly in the market, if you need access to customers, who's got a great access to the customer you're already trying to reach? And can you win their hearts and minds over in some way as a distribution partner to channel your product or services or software or they provide value-added services on top through that channel. I'll give an example. Years ago, we were trying to crack the GPS market in agriculture and farming and we needed a big channel to reach the farmer. And we'd been trying to go to the major equipment manufacturers like Case IH in New Holland and the guys who sell tractors and combines we thought we'd go for them. We actually we ended up finding the sweet spot was the parts counter, the guys that service the machines, because our product could sit on their shelf at a price point that suddenly could look interesting to them relative to oil filters and servicing product that they were incented to sell. And so we ended up getting 2,000 Case IH distribution outlets around the world. We started in North America, though. And it all started with just training these parts guys. We'd get 30 or 40 of them in a room in the middle of the Midwest somewhere and then go to another bunch and take our product and sales teams. And we'd train them on the basics of GPS and then how do you actually put this light bar thing into the cab, mag mount it on the screen, plug it in the cigarette lighter adapter, push buttons and you're off in terms of a guidance product for tractors and combines and such. The scale that overnight we suddenly opened up was just crazy. That's the sort of thinking you've got to think about. How do you find big avenues to market for your product? And ideally, we actually designed the product for the, this channel in a big way. And it's partly the ecosystem that's around you, right? Understand where you sit in the value chain and who are these other players in the ecosystem that you should tap into. You'll open up a massive potential. Talking about big Toby, you've said when growing a business in the US, you've got to knock on big doors to win big prizes. Yeah. What do you mean by this? Ross just talked about that example with the agricultural hardware and the GPS system. That's a perfect example. What I mean is you've got this market that is so big, it's easy to get lost in. 
But if you think carefully about your custom segment, whatever you might be in selling widgets or whatever it might be, you can very quickly identify the very biggest players in town in the US, unless you're B2C. Then you think about channel, who are your big doors for go-to-market? But for us, now we're a B2B play. Very quickly, we said, well, Tam Samsung, at the very top of our serviceable, obtainable market, who are the biggest doors in town and go knock on them? And for us, that looks like giant technology companies. Ros made the point earlier, that if you can demonstrate early traction the same as it is for an investor, it's just the same for your early customers too. Demonstrate early traction with a big brand or a big logo or a big account or a big partner, do whatever it takes to win that one, then go knock on the biggest door. So in our world, that looks like Meta, Amazon, TikTok, Google, this goes on and on and on. For us, we're a little bit different because we do hunt in both enterprise and mid-market, but we're very particular about our buyer profile and that's how we find that focus that Ros was talking about because otherwise you get lost. If you don't focus, you can't target. If you can't target, you get expensive. Your marketing costs blow out. Your unit economics as an investable business blow out. And so for us, focus comes from massive addressable market, be able to name your top 10 or top 100 customers by name, even if they're not customers yet. And that's what focus looks like. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that SaaS, shotgun sales kind of method, you've got to make SaaS sales as a science. Targeting goes hand in hand with that. There's too many sales teams who love to go around wine and dine and kiss babies and shake hands and have a great time networking. But that whole modern SaaS sales engine now is a completely different animal. You don't turn up with a busload of 50 consultants and 20 techs to try and help sell something. It's much more targeted and ties back to your Tam Samsung segments you're going to really go after. Why don't you tell us a bit about the Meta deal? What worked for you and what made Barkle stand out from the competition? Two-thirds luck, one-third experience and skill, I suppose. The Meta deal was a funny one for us. It was during the pandemic. We were in lockdown in New Zealand. We were trying to sell remotely into the US to prove whether or not we had a thing that would sell in the US and trying to generate some inbound. We weren't doing any outbound stuff at the time into the US. We got an inbound email from a gentleman at Facebook, fb.com. And we thought it was a student scammer doing some research or something, and we ignored the email and probably got a follow-up about a week and a half later saying, hey, do you want Facebook's business or not? It was Facebook at the time, not Meta. And we ended up responding, and then we went through a process with Meta. They were hunting in our category for a solution, and they had already selected a partner elsewhere in the Meta business, and so we were coming in as the non-incumbent challenger, and we didn't know that at the time. We ended up winning that deal on two fronts. One because we recognized that this was a potential flagship customer. We made sure we put our best foot forward with every engagement. So we really went OTT. It wasn't following our normal sales process. It was absolutely going deep. Best foot forward every time. We got crazy with it. We tried to match the numbers of people on calls and things, which got out of hand just to demonstrate that we can stand up. Sure enough, fast forward, the meta chose us and we're incredibly grateful for that. And they've been a great early customer for us in the US and globally. When we asked them why they chose us, they said, feature for feature, you guys did have a couple more features than the other guys, but... We just really wanted to work with you. You were good humans. Didn't want to work with the other guys. They got upset when they were in a competitive process and one of their guys blew their stack and meter like, we're out. And so it didn't matter that they had the relationship. It's a whole lot easier to deal with an incumbent for a big corporate like Meta than to choose someone new, especially an unproven new person. But they took that risk because of the humans on the end of the call. And to me, that's testimony to the importance of building a good culture, the importance of knowing and understanding which opportunities you go ATT on. And so we ended up winning them on a global deal, which has been game-changing for us and opens other doors, really. You've got two examples there. You've got Case New Holland and you've got Meta, where you've won some pretty big deals or sales contracts. What is the level of competition like and what do New Zealand businesses need to think about for that? Depends on the product and the level of maturity of what your innovation is, I would say. 
if you're in the early stages and you're out there blazing the trail, probably the harder battle is convincing the customer than trying to stay here to the competition. I think overall, like you said, Toby, everyone moves quickly here. If they're in that segment that you're in, they'll be doing feature by feature analysis. They'll be getting your software. They'll be working out what's going on on the product and how to differentiate. It's very fast moving, which makes it fun and exciting, but it also means your product management and strategy team needs to be rock solid. I would always put them up on a high pedestal and I'm biased about that because I grew up doing that. But I think the competition can just depend on the market and its maturity level. I'm a big believer that if you haven't got a third of the market, like you start out in many new innovation areas, there's a huge proliferation of players. And over time, I'd say 10 years, but there's a consolidation, it can be longer, and you end up with three or four big market share dominant players in most markets. And so if you're not one of them and building a business towards being one of those, then you're not at the big end of town long term. I'm a big believer in if your strategy on product and go-to-market is right, you ought to be building out a growth trajectory in this country in the US of 50 to 100 million in five to 10 years. If you're not tracking towards something like that, then I'd challenge that something's not quite right. Product will go to market. The first 100 million should be a layup in this part of the world, really. It's easy to say that. I know there's a lot more trickiness in getting there sometimes. It is a bit of a race to stay in that top three to four. But if you're doing things right, you'll get it. 150 is a layup, Toby. Just write that down on your wall. Yeah, I was just <laughs> joking that out. Here we go. <laughs> How many years? I think I've got three left. 50 million and five and 110. You should be able to grow that quickly here. How important is it to build relationships and find a network of partners in the US, Ross? Well, there's many categories of partners that you can consider, whether it's partners to help you sell, like lead generators, sales agent, that sort of partners, or it's dealer partners who do a lot more distribution and sales and service and repairs, training, on the street feet that can be there locally, and you can do that cost effectively. If you're hiring salespeople on staff, sometimes the products need that, but they are also more cost to your business. So can you do it in a more cost-effective way? It depends on the product and what you need your partners to be doing. The other kind of partner in terms of the ecosystem partners we also referenced, big players that suddenly give you reach to a lot of customers quickly and cost-effectively. If you can find those kind of channel partners, I think that's really critical. They just know so much about things like marketing and sales at scale that you can just water ski behind. Toby, how can a New Zealand company make the right connections in the US? Any tips? It's time on the ground. I think that's the best way. It's going to the networking events. It's all that classic stuff. It's going to conferences. Conferences are really expensive to attend. I probably shouldn't say which ones, but we just go along to the conferences and we hang out. This is really hacky, early stage stuff. There's a conference for everything. There'll be a conference, not just for widgets. There'll be a conference for the buckles that hang on the bottom of widgets. Find out who your focus audience is, who your priority audience is. Go and spend time with them at the shoulders, having the drinks and going and listen to them speak. And you've just got to beat the feed to build those human relationships. And increasingly, post-pandemic, we're seeing that importance just 
explain. We're now recognizing our buyers previously were happy to buy all digitally. Now they expect to see you. They want to know that we're at their shoulder physically as well as digitally. Just be on the ground. No substitute. Totally. Trade shows, events, all that stuff's critical with product. It's part of the market research too. You're right. If you have those relationships, they'll tell you what your go-to-market needs to look like. They'll tell you how your product needs to adapt. It's not just executive level relationships. Ros made the point earlier about the importance of your product teams and product strategy. Get your product managers in market. Get them talking to these folks. And if you don't have product managers yet, get some. If you don't have time for that, get some of your technologists in market as a software business so that they know what product to build and they know how it needs to present. And then everything will start to fall into place behind that has been our experience. Kiwi founders love to hear war stories or what went wrong. Toby, what lessons do you think you've learned? And you touched on a few during the course of this podcast, but if you were to distill one lesson that you'd love to say, hey, I did this wrong, and if I was to redo it again, here's what I'd do differently, what would that be? We've only got 15 minutes, so that wasn't, yeah, sorry, I need to limit it to one. There's so many lessons. I think the biggest thing for us, the biggest lesson is we were a little bit arrogant. We won some big logo customers, Meta being one of them, from New Zealand without having a US presence yet. And we thought, product market fit, cracked it. Go to market, just find these folks. And and it was an arrogance and it was wrong. You have to be prepared to adapt your product and your go-to-market strategy to fit the 50 different countries that is the US, to Ros's point earlier. And if you're not, you're going to miss a trick and you're going to get beaten because your competitors will. Your competitors will bend their service offer or they will bend their product to suit what the customers need. So for us, that was a real slap in the face. It's like, you've got to adapt. You've got to localize. And just because they speak form of English doesn't mean it's our English and doesn't mean the language in the product is the same. doesn't mean the language when we articulate it in a value prop or a sales deck or a pitch or, you know, or that my customer success team used to portray value back to the customers. Now, all of that needs to change. So that was a mistake of ours. We didn't change and we didn't change fast enough. And now we're going through that. Mm. And Roz, I guess from your perspective, um, New Zealand businesses do wrong when they enter the US. I think I touched on it before. They think they've got their product. They just need a sales guy or girl to go sell it from engineer to sales. So don't skip that bit in the middle. It's, t- it's way too important to be more oriented on the product strategy, product market segmentation, all that research that we've touched on. The other thing I'd say, it's not just small companies that do this, is they have products being innovated and built, and then they have an existing go-to-market organization that's there. And so they assume that that is going to sell anything. Well, that's the biggest false assumption you could make. Toby's nodding vigorously. It seems so obvious sort of sometimes when you say that, but it's so entrenched that the sales organization is almost godlike in some companies and they can't be told that they can't do something or they don't want anyone else selling what this new widget might be. I've seen so many examples of that. It's often the culture of a company has an entrenched dominant sales behavior or entrenched dependency on dealers. We found dealers that were built and architected to sell hardware. We partnered with Caterpillar and we built out this franchise-like channel called SideTech around the world where every cat dealer principal could majority own the Trimble civil construction dealership, which put machine control onto dozers, excavators, and graders and everything else. We wrote out exactly how that business was going to hire and the job descriptions and then the type of things they had to do as a business. Then we assumed we might sell some software through that channel. No way would you sell software through that channel. So 
got to really think about that point at the start, product and go-to-market fit need to be done in, in concert. And I think that's the main thing I'd say. But what do you think the strength of New Zealand businesses uh, coming to the US and how can we leverage those? Kiwi ingenuity, got to say, innovative. I think we're nimble and quick moving in what we do generally. And we have a pretty good work ethic. We're pr- very well educated as a general rule as well. We can do a lot with very little, number eight wire. We get it done and we're, we're pretty open-minded. I'd say culturally we're like a little Switzerland. I used to always get told, I sound so folksy over here. And I said, what's folksy? And they said, well, you're kind of this little country person that speaks funny and you're not a threat to anybody. We come in with a bit of a neutral territory to ourselves and if they can understand what you're saying. They think you're a bit novel, and so you can come in and actually use that to play to your strength. They have a saying over here, go big or go home. It really is what you got to do over here. If you're going to come, you got to think big and you got to invest big. It's an incredible ride as well and, and recommend it to anyone. Toby, anything to build there? And in New Zealand, we're natural-born exporters, and that's really important in the US, right? Like We've got a limited home market. And in the US, you're exporting into every state from wherever you are. So there's this natural ability to be able to hop the state border and go into another state and be able to adapt and shift and sell because that's how we're built. That gives us an advantage over domestic competitors in the US because they view their home state as like, I know this is how it's done in Texas and therefore we're going to do it like we do in Texas everywhere else. And we've got that natural cultural advantage in the way we think and view things because we have to. I do get a bit nervous sometimes about number eight. I do get a bit nervous. We've got a tendency to decrease professionalism sometimes a little bit quickly. So that's a watch out for us. But generally our adaptability to Ros's point is spot on and the ability to be able to export to any state from any state as a natural part of our DNA, I think is awesome. Toby, Ros, thank you so much for your time today. We've loved listening to your stories and lessons learnt from building businesses in the US, the sheer size of the market, the nuances, where to go, and the importance of building relationships and getting that product market fit. You're welcome. Thank you, Dylan. Awesome to be here. Yeah, thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Visit us at investnewzealand.nz or follow us on LinkedIn for more tools and resources to help you on your way with raising capital.